0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. This morning we turn once again to the book of Genesis, the Lord's dealings with Joseph, and we turn to chapter 40. We'll read all of chapter 40 and part of chapter 41, beginning at verse 25 to verse 38. Genesis 40, beginning at verse 1. And there the word of our God reads as follows, Sometime later the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected, so he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him and his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered. But there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the cupbearer, or the chief cupbearer, told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream I saw a vine in front of me, And on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. And you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand. Just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then follows chapter 41 with the well-known dream of Pharaoh, and we begin our reading at verse 25. When Joseph appears before Pharaoh... And Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater and you. Our text this morning is taken from the last verses of Genesis chapter 41. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, 9-11, those are two numbers that are etched on the minds and hearts of almost all of us. We cannot forget that fateful day in the year of our Lord, 2001, When the trade towers in New York came tumbling down, when airplanes were flying into buildings and fields, when thousands of people died at the hands of terrorist attacks. And ever since then, it's become rather common to speak about pre-9-11 and post-9-11. And why is that? Well, it has to do with the fact that 9-11 represents a turning point in the history of America and perhaps even in the history of the world, time will tell. But then beloved, if 9-11 represents a turning point, so do many other things. If you happen to work for General Motors, it may very well be that 2007 will turn out to be a business turning point. A year when you get dethroned by Toyota as the number one car maker in the world. And so, beloved, there are turning points in the lives of nations, and the lives of corporations. And there are also turning points in human lives. Perhaps some of you are even able to identify them. Perhaps some of you say to yourself this morning, you know, on that day, my life changed radically. Or in that year, my life went into a totally different direction. Or because of that event... Things changed so fundamentally for me. It may have been due to your health, to your faith, someone you met or some other circumstance or situation. You may have experienced a turning point in your life. Yes, beloved, and that brings us once again to Joseph. For as we turn to our text of this morning we see that in his life as well, there is a huge turning point, something that divides before from after. Last Sunday when we left him, we left him in jail. And true, he was doing better there than expected, but nevertheless, it was still jail, and jail is never pleasant. Well, this Sunday when we leave him, we shall see him in a whole different place And position. We shall see him in a palace as the ruler of Egypt. What a turn around. What an unimaginable change of fortunes. Who would ever could have predicted it? And so this is something that is worthy of closer examination and I preach to you on the following theme. From prison to palace, Joseph is promoted. We're going to see that he's wonderfully equipped by the Lord. He is sadly forgotten by the cupbearer. And he is dramatically elevated by Pharaoh. Well, beloved, in our text we are told, first of all, about Joseph's glorious elevation. However, this is not something, I remind you, that happened overnight. It took almost two years Last time, when we said farewell to Joseph, those two years had just barely begun. And shortly after those two years started, Joseph receives company in prison, very important company, by the way. He is joined by two high Egyptian officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker from Pharaoh's court. Why are they there? Well, you'll notice that no details are supplied. However, we are told that they offended their master. And the use of that word or the nature of that particular word for offend in the original means that somehow they had sinned against him. Maybe they had conspired against him. We don't know exactly what. But it seems that they were there for a right and justifiable reason. And the same, of course, cannot be said for Joseph. Joseph. His imprisonment is simply the result of a mad, sex-driven woman who has been spurned and who has made wild and lying accusations against him. His is very much a miscarriage of justice. But be that as it may, there is irony here as the two guilty prisoners are assigned to Joseph, the innocent prisoner. And it says, note, that the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph. And who is the captain of the guard? None other than Potiphar. And so these men are under Joseph's care. And from all appearances, it would seem to us that they receive good care. And that, in a way, is kind of surprising, don't you think? you would expect that at this particular point in his life, Joseph would be doing his work in a big sulk. That he would be going around with a huge chip on his shoulder, that he would be busy wallowing in a sea of self-pity. After all, look at what has happened to him. But you notice, beloved, there is none of that. Look up there. The baker are well provided for, even to the point that one day Joseph takes note of their long and downcast faces and asks, what ails them? And the answer that he gets is all about dreams. They both had dreams on the same night, and those dreams had disturbed and unsettled them, and they didn't know what to do with them or make of them. So what happens next? While well, Joseph asked them to tell him their dreams, only he, he adds a very important proviso, namely this, do not interpretations belong to God? Having a dream and understanding a dream are two very different things. And the difference lies with God. Only he really knows what they mean. Only he has the answer. Yes, and one more thing, only he can give the gift of interpretation to men. So what does that tell you? It tells you something about Joseph's dependence on God. If when he was young he had sometimes come across as a know-it-all, that particular trait seems to have disappeared. Joseph knows that he needs God to help these two anxious and desperate men. Yes, and God decides to use Joseph. Joseph, the receiver of some pretty big dreams himself, becomes Joseph, the interpreter of dreams. God gives him the insight that he needs to make sense of these two dreams. And you know, of course, first up is the dream of the cupbearer. It's all about a vine with three branches. The branches in turn blood blossom and and ripen into grapes and and the grapes are squeezed and and the juice runs into Pharaoh's cup. And as for the interpretation, well, Joseph tells him this means that in three days he will be restored to his former position. He will once again carry Pharaoh's cup. In short, the outcome is very positive for the cupbearer and he has nothing to fear. And next up is the baker, seeing that the cupbearer has had such good results with his dream and its interpretation. He anticipates the same thing, and he tells Joseph his dream about three baskets, of which the top basket was filled with all kinds of baked goods. We know from archaeology that baking already at this time was a very advanced art in Egypt all kinds of pastries, all kinds of cakes, all kinds of delicacies. But Joseph's not finished. for then, of course, the birds come and they eat out of the basket. The top one. So what does it mean? Well, it's not good. Within three days, Pharaoh will, notice the expression, lift up his head but not to restore him. Instead, the head of the baker is going to be lifted completely off his shoulders. The baker will be hung and his flesh will be eaten by the birds of the air. So what do we have here? We have two dreams. Two dreams of very different outcomes. And we have Joseph, the interpreter of dreams, but above all, we have God, the giver of dreams. All in all, then God here uses dreams as a vehicle of revelation, as a means of unveiling, unfolding the future and future events. And of course, that's not the only time he does so. He uses dreams as well elsewhere in scripture. Think of Jacob who receives a dream at Bethel about a ladder going up to heaven. Think of Gideon dreaming about a loaf of barley tumbling down the hill into the camp of the Midianites. Think of Solomon who was invited by God in a dream to ask for what he wanted. And also beloved, in the Gospel of Matthew you have dreams at the beginning and the end. At the beginning you have those dreams to Joseph to take Mary as his wife and not to go and see Herod. And at the end, you have the dream of the wife of Pharaoh or the wife of Pilate so that she may warn her husband about crucifying Jesus. And yet, beloved, in all those dreams that you find in Scripture, you find that they are most prominently active in only two places and that is in the book of Daniel And here in the days of Joseph, nowhere else do dreams play such an important role. So what does that tell us for today? There are some people who insist that all of this tells us that God still uses dreams as a means of revelation today. And indeed in some Christian circles there is a whole movement afoot telling us that God communicates directly with His people today by means of visions and voices. And the result is that some have come to regard scripture as a secondary source, if not as even an unnecessary source. And when you think of it, no wonder. Why bother with the regular when you can have the spectacular? Why opt for the normal means of grace when the abnormal lies close at hand? Why bother with a Bible that needs to be read and studied and discerned and interpreted when you can get the information that you need straight from God himself by means of dreams, visions, or voices? And so they run away with their special dreams or visions. And there's special voices. And it's all very interesting. But it's also very dangerous. I remind you, church history is filled with people who had dreams, who thought they knew what those dreams meant, who acted on them, and ended up in disaster. Self-appointed interpreters are dangerous people and also one should not forget the devil. Dreams are such a great way to mislead people down the garden path to delusion and destruction. Sure, then, beloved, we do well to heed the words of Joseph that interpretation belongs to God and to those special servants whom he equips to interpret them. Joseph was one of them, Daniel is another, and for the rest, I don't know any. Indeed, I seriously doubt that we need and that God sends any anymore. After all, we have his word. And that word is inspired by the Holy Spirit himself so as to make us wise and to make us complete. We need only turn to it. But then, beloved, as Joseph is in the midst of interpreting these two dreams, he also issues a plea. After giving the cupbearer the good news about his imminent release, he adds, But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. For I was forcibly carried away from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. What a heart-wrenching plea. Remember me. Please, remember me. And how it must have raised his hopes. When in three days' time, Pharaoh sends for the cupbearer, as Joseph predicted he would, and and restores him, then Joseph must have been holding his breath. And every time someone rattled on the prison gate, he must have thought, they've come for me. My bondage, my slavery is almost over. And nevertheless, it was not to be. Initially, there were those high hopes. And then they became cautious hopes. And finally, there were no hopes anymore at all. The weeks and the months went by and nothing changed. And why? Well, because as it says in chapter 40, verse 23, the chief cub however did not remember joseph he forgot him but a sad commentary what depressing news and yet at the same time so human so doubly deeply human First, we put so much hope in other people. Second, we are so often disappointed in them. Isn't that true, beloved? How often have you not put a lot of hope and expectation in other people? You expected that they would stick up for you. You assume that your co-workers would defend you. You think naturally that those who are closest to you will do their best for you. Or you expect like Joseph that one good turn deserves another. I stroke you, you stroke me. I compliment you, you compliment me. I help you, you help me. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Only a dozen. How easily people forget. How quickly we end up going about our own business. How soon we put others out of mind. One of the saddest realities in this life is that we people are good at using and discarding one another. And that's rather depressing, right? And yet, and yet thankfully it's not the end of the story. You know, there is one in whom you can place all your hope and you will not have your hopes dashed to pieces. There is one who does not forget or discard you. There is one who always remembers and hears and answers your pleas. Isn't that what Scripture says over and over again? Psalm 56, when I was afraid, I trusted in you. Trust in the Lord. Psalm 118, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in a man. Psalm 146, do not put your trust in princes, in mortal men who cannot save. Or Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Or even Jeremiah 17, cursed is the one who trusts in man who depends on flesh for his strengths. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. Yes, beloved, and as far as we know, that is what Joseph did. As the months in prison became a year and the year became another year, He consoled himself with the fact that he still had God. And that his God is in control always. He knows what he's doing. We may not know. We may often wonder. But he knows. Truly he knows and he cares. And if you want absolute certainty about that, I would say to you, look at the cross. And there you see how far he has gone, how deep he has gone in order to rescue and to save you. You see, Jesus Christ is the guarantee that we have a God who never stops loving and caring and watching over his people. Yes, and surely this is also evident as the story of Joseph continues to unfold. For chapter 40, verse 23 is not the last word. It doesn't all end with the words, and he forgot him. Now there is more to God's plan. First, there are more dreams. This time Pharaoh has dreams, dreams about cows and grain, dreams about seven healthy cows and seven ugly cows, about seven healthy heads of grain and seven thin, meager heads of grain. And secondly, there is more interpretation. The healthy represents plenty, the ugly and the thin represents famine. Famine. Yes, and about all of these things, a number of comments are surely in order. In the first place, beloved, take note of the wise and even wonderful plan of God concerning Joseph. For I ask you, imagine what would have happened if after he was released, the cub had had almost instantly gone to Pharaoh and had pleaded the case of Joseph. Chances are it will all have fallen on deaf ears. You see, for Joseph to be forgotten was painful for him, but it was also necessary. For in due time, as we see, Pharaoh himself experiences this this huge need to know. He has these two vexing dreams and he knows that they are telling him something, but what? And it all works on his nerves and it plays on his mind and it disturbs him day and night. He has to have answers. But where do you find answers to dreams? He calls in the wise men and the magicians, all those civil servants, and he even tells them about his dreams. Notice, he's not as nasty as Nebuchadnezzar later on who tells his wise guys... That they need to tell him both the dream as well as its interpretation. Now, Pharaoh only wants answers. Forget about all the other stuff. What's the bottom line? But he gets no answers. So, beloved, the way is prepared for the cupbearer and ultimately for Joseph. Joseph. For the cupbearer notices Pharaoh's frustration and, and anger with all of those men who are supposed to have all the answers. As and As the cupbearer sees and as he listens, suddenly a light goes on. And he remembers Joseph. And he dares to tell Pharaoh about Joseph. And Joseph is summoned and cleaned up and presented to Pharaoh. And he interprets. And you say to yourself, what preparations, what leading, how God puts it all together. That sets the stage. But you know, if there's something very positive to be said about God's leading and all of these things, there's also something positive to be said about God's servant Joseph. But look, when he appears, he's not shy. He says to Pharaoh, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer to his dreams. You notice twice he said that. He said it to the baker and the cupbearer, and now he says it to Pharaoh. He directs everything to God. And I would say to you that's surely evidence of a God-centered life. You know, sometimes I meet people and they tell me they're still looking for themselves. In other words, they haven't found themselves yet. And you know what? They're not going to find themselves either. Because you see, there's only one way to find oneself, and that is by finding God first. If you find God, you find everything. And you find yourself. Yes, and once you find God, you're not ashamed to give Him the credit. And neither are you insecure in your speaking. You know, there is a theory that actually the wise guys in Egypt knew the meaning of Pharaoh's dreams, but they didn't tell him. And why didn't they tell him? Fear. You just do not go to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. You just do not go to him and bring him bad news. It may well cost you your life. So you're cautious. Very cautious. But not Joseph. He tells it as it is. He'd done that as a teenager to his brothers and father. He'd done that in prison to the baker. You know, thinking about it, it would have been rather easy to have sugar-coated that dream of the baker and given him a rather vague kind of interpretation which sort of left him hanging and in turn would confront him in due time with his fate. And the same goes for Pharaoh. What king wants to hear about impending disaster, about famine coming to Israel? And yet, beloved Joseph, will have none of it. God has given him a task to do, and he does it. He speaks up, no matter what. Something to learn from, right? Something to think about. Maybe something to apply in our own lives. But then, beloved, if Joseph exhibits a bold, God-centered life, he also exhibits something else, namely God-inspired wisdom. Because after the interpretation of the dreams follows his advice to Pharaoh about what he should do during the next 14 years in his kingdom. And I dare say to you that advice of Joseph is not homegrown. It's not first we get the sacred and then we get the secular, first we get the spiritual and then we get the natural. I think we need to see that also in the advice that Joseph gives, there is God. I refer you to the New Testament where the Lord Jesus makes a rather interesting comment. He says to his followers, but when you are arrested, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given What to say? For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Well, it's true, Joseph has not been arrested. But there is a sense in which surely he is on trial here. But nevertheless, when he stands before Pharaoh, God gives him what to say. What to speak. And Jesus says that's what God always does. Through the power of the Spirit. That's what He does in the hearts and lives of His children. When they don't know what to say, God will tell them what to say. A little wonder therefore, for Pharaoh says, There is no one as discerning and wise as you, and you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. From prison to palace, from serving to being served. When you put it all together, there's something else here that should catch our eye. And that is one of the great themes that runs throughout the entire Scriptures as well, and that is that for the children of God, suffering leads... Where? To more suffering, perhaps, but ultimately, suffering leads to glory. That's true of Joseph. Remarkably so, that's true of all the children of God. Paul says our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. And of course, it's very much true of our Lord Jesus Christ. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So, beloved, do not despair when you suffer. When you suffer as a child of God. Remember Joseph. Remember all the children of God throughout the ages. And remember Jesus our Lord. After darkness, light. After trouble, triumphs. After a cross, a crown. Let's pray. Almighty God and Father, we come to you and we thank you that you lead us through this life, that you are the God who always hears and knows and understands, the God who leads, and the God who is faithful forever. Father, you do not forget about us. Everyone else may forget. But you never forget. And so we place our hope and our confidence in you. And we thank you as well, Father, for reminding us that you are the God of dreams, the God of revelation. We thank you that we may know your will for our lives through your holy word. And we thank you as well, Father, that we may know for a certainty that after suffering, there is blessing. After trouble, there is triumph. And as you lead your children through this life with all of its ups and downs, its troubles, its uncertainties, its conflicts, its hardships, that in the end, there will be Peace and there will be blessing. So, Father, enable us to go forward in that strength and in that certainty, living out of your hand, dependent on your grace, ever thankful for the redeeming work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.